Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Joel Kim Booster is everywhere these days. He's writing on hit shows like Big Mouth and The Other Two. He wrote and is starring in the new romantic comedy Fire Island, which has been a critically acclaimed hit. And he's also starring, alongside Maya Rudolph, in Loot, a brand new show on Apple TV+. If you've been following Joel Kim Booster's career for the last few years, or if you've listened to his stand-up comedy, all this success shouldn't be too surprising. Joel is, I mean, he's great. He's a hilarious, compelling actor. He is a brilliant writer. He is a terrific stand-up. He brings a very distinct presence to the stage. Goofy, confident, even kind of preposterously goofy and confident sometimes, and vulnerable when he needs to be. He's not afraid to show his flaws. And he also really sincerely loves chain restaurants. When I talked with Joel in 2018, he'd just released his debut stand-up album, Model Minority. In this bit from the album, Joel is talking about one of his biggest pet peeves, when people try to guess his nationality. I do have to say, I actually, I, I hate it when they guess correctly, though, because it's almost always worse for me, because, like, for instance, I, I waited tables uh, at the Olive Garden for two years in college. Hold for applause. Uh, again... You know, when I have to ask for it, it means less. Um, no, I worked there for two years, and I will always remember this. I walked up to a table. It was, like, a table of three, like, older white guys. And I, you know, I introduced myself, and I got them their breadsticks. And then at one point, one of them just turns around and looks at me, and he's like, Hey, son, are you Korean? And I was like, yeah, I am. That's an amazing guess. Like, how did you know that? And he was like, well, I fought in the Korean War, so I know a thing or two about that. And I was like, oh. <laughs> What does that mean for this relationship now? You know? <laughs> You've put me in an odd place. Uh, do you need a new server? Are you having a flashback? What is the situation? You know? Joel wow. Kim Booster, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you so much. I hate listening to myself. <laughs> this is going to be a long interview for me um, as we listen to these clips of bits that I now hate. Um, Good news, JKB. I... We're recording this whole thing. We're going to run it on the radio. <laughs> um, thank you so much for having me. Of course. It's a, it's a joy to have you on the show. So I didn't know before I heard this album that you were adopted. Yeah. Um, you grew up in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. Where in the Midwest did you grow up? Uh, like right outside of Chicago, like 40 minutes outside of Chicago on the south end. So like the southwest suburbs. Um, Plainfield was the name of my town, uh, which sort of sandwiched in between Naperville and Joliet, which are cities that more people know about than Plainfield. What did you think of it when you were growing up? I loved it growing up. I mean, I think it's an excellent place to leave. Um, uh, but it was sort of, I don't know, it was ideal for me in a lot of ways when I was really young. Um, it seemed, I don't know, it was the nice mix of like being close to a target, but there was fields everywhere and cows and, and um Yeah, I don't know. I didn't really, um, it's only really in hindsight and sort of as I got older that I realized um, that it was not my favorite place to be, I think. Um, I had I had very narrow sort of expectations for a hometown when I was growing up, so it, it suited me fine. 
were you self-aware about the fact that uh, you were Korean and everyone that surrounded you was white ethnically in the town that you lived in? Not until much later. I was much more aware. And like, full disclosure, this is like a bit. But I mean, I talk about knowing I was gay before knowing I was Asian. And that is something that is unfortunately very true because we were homeschooled. Um, into, I was homeschooled until I was 16. Um, and it really wasn't until right before middle school or around middle school that I started to sort of be a, more aware of uh, the racial dynamics in my town. Um, but for me, like, you know, I was only at home. I was I hung out with my brother and my sister and my family, and that was pretty much it. My parents didn't have adult friends that they hung out with. We didn't go to a traditional church um, until I was in middle school. So for me, it, it just... In my mind, you know, I was just like, this is just what families are and this is what families look like. And I'm sure every family has uh, an Asian son <laughs> um, in some regard. I was much more preoccupied with the the gay stuff, I think, and being because even from a really young age, um, you know, that was sort of blasted that this is wrong. You know, nobody ever said that it was wrong, that I was no one was ever sort of aggressively racist in, you know, uh, any way, or at least I wasn't exposed to it um, when I was a kid. So I never thought it was weird or wrong. I just sort of thought that's how it was. It was when I went, we went, my my mom's side of the family is, is in the South, and um, we went to a family reunion in Alabama, in Birmingham, when I was like seven or eight. And that was when I think it really hit me because there are so many pictures of just like, you know, 70 people in a photograph and then me. And it is very clear <laughs> that uh, I stick out. So I think that was probably when I started put, putting two and two together. Did your parents homeschool you for religious or ideological reasons? Yeah. Or? Um, they, my parents uh, were and are very evangelical. Um, and they were very, um, and, and very right wing, uh, evangelical too, in a way that like, um, I think they, they probably skew more like libertarian, but it's very distrustful of a, the state educating <laughs> your kids and b like not having control over the kinds of knowledge that are, is being transferred, um, in public schools, they didn't want me learning about evolution. They didn't want me learning about sex. They didn't want me learning, you know, um, uh, they wanted to make sure that I was, you know, learning about history in a very specific point of view. And, um, yeah. Your older siblings are your parents' biological children. Yes. Um, did, was like part of your life an explanation of the situation was like, there's something that your parents told you. Um, no, I mean, it, for, for me, like growing up, it was just like a very matter of fact explanation of like, you know, some moms, um, aren't ready and, um, or can't and, and this is why, and, you know, and this happens and, and we are so blessed and lucky that, you know, we got to have you instead. I will say, you know, um, I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about adoption and, and, um, and sort of the way it's viewed in the world and stuff like that. But one thing my parents never did and never framed it as, and which shut down very quickly when other people would say it, is they never, when they got like, well, aren't you a lucky boy um, for being adopted? And my parents would always be like, no, no, 
we're the lucky ones. Like this is not, and I hate it when people are like, oh, you're so lucky that you got rescued or like any time, any framing of that, like when I see interactions between like adopted kids and and people out in the world, like that is the most infuriating thing I think for everybody. Cause nobody says that about babies, like biological children. Um, and it's the same concept. Like parenting is parenting. You are, you know, if you want a child, it's if you can't frame it as like, I am doing a good thing by doing this way rather than having a biological kid. And I think like that's one thing my parents really did nail uh, growing up for all their faults is they never made me feel like I was a charity case or that, there, that they loved me any differently um, than my uh, or they wanted me any differently than my brother and my sister. It was always, you know, we are lucky that we were able to have you. Um, and I think that I think is, is probably, I don't know. It is why I don't have a lot of angst about it today. Even more to get into with Joel Kim Booster after the break, stick around. It's bullseye from maximumfun.org and NPR. It's bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is Joel Kim Booster. Joel is the star and screenwriter of the new romantic comedy Fire Island, which is streaming right now on Hulu. He's also starring alongside Maya Rudolph in the new TV show Loot, which just debuted on Apple TV+. Besides that, he's a stand-up comic, a great one. When I talked with him in 2018, he just released his debut album, Model Minority. Let's get back into our conversation. Your parents' religion sounds like, at least from your album, like it was a little bit ad hoc. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> That's one way to put it. <laughs> well, I think yeah, in the album, you describe it as retrospectively maybe a cult. Yeah. <laughs> but um, what was your experience of religion like when in your house when you were a kid? I mean, for us, it was mostly Sundays spent with my dad reading the Bible to us aloud and sort of having like in within our family discussions about it and um, just sort of uh, the very sort of black and white moralistic view of the world. Um, And for me, that just meant control. Like I felt really controlled in everything that I was consuming in, you know, media wise and what I was allowed to uh, watch and who I was allowed to hang out with and what I was allowed to read. It was really frustrating. I mean, I remember when I was like nine, my parents, um, they listened to every CD and read every book and comic book and everything like that, that, and watched every show with us to make sure that was okay. And I just remember them sitting me down because I wanted the Backstreet Boys CD and I was nine maybe. And they said that, um, you know, upon review, they could not let me get the CD because of the song where the lyrics are, no matter who you are, what you've done, where you've been, as long as you love me. And they sent me down a nine-year-old and were like, Joel, it does matter what a person has done. And it does matter who they are. Um, and if they don't have, you know, and it just, I was like, I'm nine. <laughs> I want to listen to the Backstreet Boys. Uh, how is, and so like, it was always things like, those situations always stick out to me. Um, because like, that's what I saw religion as for, until I probably, until I started going to a, a real, cuckoo bananas um evangelical church of my own when i was in uh middle school that was it was all sort of uh it was never like sort of jesus focused love focused in my house it was rules focused it was you cannot do this because god does not approve of x y or z um and so it was was just very frustrating it was not primed for (laughs) as something for me to enjoy uh on my own 
Do you believe in God now? Um, that's oh, wow. Um, no, I don't. I think at best I'm an agnostic at this point. It's sort of hard to untangle yourself completely when you've been indoctrinated for you know half your life um, in this certain set of beliefs, and so it's really hard for me to you know say. When you grow up looking at the world as sort of like created and there's a plan and and there is like a, a another side, I think like that's probably the biggest sticking point for me is it's really hard for me to come to terms with the fact that I will die and that's it. You know, nobody can really wrap their head around it. But for me, um, it's always been easier to believe that I would rather believe that I will be chilling in a house as a ghost for eternity <laughs> than uh, not having anything Um once I'm in the ground. And maybe that makes me a child. I'm sure that there are people who are who, who, who believe that. I know that there are people. There are people in my life who believe that about me. But um, yeah, it's it's hard to sort of step away from it completely, I think. I mean, it's good to know that you'd be a chill ghost and not one of those like <laughs> chain rattling ghosts. No, no, no. I think I I, I would be I would be fun. I would be um, like with a mimosa and yeah, everything. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You worked as a writer for uh, Moshe Kasher's television show on Comedy Central. It was mm-hmm. like a talk show about um, about like a, a comic dialogue about hot issues. Yeah, the, the ethos of, of which cultural I, conflict. Right. Yeah. It was. It was sort of uh, the ethos. I think really was everybody is wrong a little bit, um, and so you would sort of we would look at issues through that way and sort of you know try and be like I, I i don't know that i could work on an uh both sides both sides sort of show anymore <laughs> but um back then in 2015 it felt very fresh um when you started doing stand-up did you feel like you had to um either be a club comic an alternative comic or a gay comic mm, yeah i mean those last two are sort of one and the same in many people's eyes i think I, it's so funny to me because when especially when i was coming up in new york you know uh, people would call me an alt comic which is so wild to me because i was doing basically like it's pretty standard i was not pushing the form in any sort of way you know i'm, I'm not like taking it and like reimagining it and then making it work um for everybody i was doing what john mulaney and Tignataro and Aziz and everybody was doing at the time is just observations about my life and things that I've seen and things that have happened to me, you know, and writing a punchline around it. And so it was always very strange to me when people would be like, you're an alt comic because the things that I would be talking about would be eating, you know, and it's like, <laughs> why, you know, it, the structure is the same. I, it's just the, the subject matter, I guess, is a little bit uh, out of left field. But I definitely felt that, especially in um chicago i think i i I felt the pressure to be you know when you're in a smaller city like that i think there's definitely you know more accepted ways to be successful and so you know it's like you got to do these mics and you have to do these shows and then you have to move on and it's like a very set pattern and then you move to a city like new york and suddenly there is no right way to do anything um, and it is sort of you a uh, choose your own adventure of like, well, what kind of career do you want to have? You can sort of cobble it together from any of these venues. And um, I don't know. I, I feel very lucky that it was a really freeing time to be a gay comic. Like there, I think there were moments in comedy, you know, even just a couple of years before I started eight years ago, where one person's success meant that that door was closed for the rest of us. It's sort of like a one in one out sort of situation. And now I, I don't know. I like so many of my closest friends are comedians and there is not even 
there's like a natural sort of like competition that goes on that just is like running below the surface of any, you know, comedian's career. But for me, it's like, oh, like when John Early or Matteo Lane or Bowen Yang or any of these other comedians, gay comedians are finding success, it just means like there will be more for all of us now. And it's so nice to not have to worry about like anyone like grabbing for the scraps from the table anymore because it does feel like things are changing and there's enough room for everybody at the table. Your comedy character, <laughs> particularly on uh, online on Twitter, but also to some extent on stage, I think is probably dumber than you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And like more romantically desperate. I think, yeah. Um, the my my brand on stage and online is hot idiot. Um, <laughs> that's what I'm going for. And if I can, and I think it's a lot like um, it. You have to be a good singer to sing deliberately off key, and I think you have to be smart to be um, to play that dumb well. I want to play another clip from my guest Joel Kim Booster's album Model Minority. Um, uh, Joel is talking about gay guys who fetishize Asian men, which has a, a name in the gay community that I will allow you to say kindly, Joel. Rice queen. Um, and this is the moment that uh, he realized he was on a date with one. We went back to his apartment and he was making me a drink in his kitchen. And I was just looking around his kitchen and I noticed he had like 14 Thai cookbooks. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> I see you now. You know, like I see who you are. And it was like a horror movie, you know, because suddenly I like I saw his entire apartment and there was just like rice patty hats everywhere and two two katanas over the bed, you know. And it was very strange for me. But it got worse. Like we uh, in the middle of foreplay, like I went there with him, I was like, all of this is fine. And in the middle of foreplay, he leans into my ear and I you not, he said to me, So you're gonna be my little geisha boy tonight? <laughs> Yeah, it was bad, but you know what's worse is that I stayed. Um, I stayed. Oh God! I mean, what's telling to what's what's telling to me about that bit is that sure you're you're calling this guy out on stage, but you're ultimately questioning your own self of sense of self worth. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think there was a tag too that maybe I started doing either before I don't know left, but it was like yeah, I'm pretty sure that guy stopped texting me back uh, <laughs> too, which is maybe the saddest part about that. Um, but yeah, I, it, it's so it feels like I mean a lot of this this was all that whole album is material that I'd been you know working on for at that point six or seven years, and so it's so weird to hear that stuff because it's changed so much for me. Now I mean. I was writing jokes about myself and I and I was being, you know, sort of self-deprecating in a way to make myself more palatable for people. I there is a special that delves deeply into this. Um and for me it just like wasn't helpful and it's not how I really feel about myself now. And so there was like a shift like right around the time I was recording that album where I was like, "Oh, but like this isn't. This isn't like my this isn't being honest." Like and this outlet for me is so refreshing because I, it feels like uh, I'm able to be as honest as I as I can be, and that's like for me as an artist, like in, especially as a comedian, that's the question I always ask myself: Is this funny? Is this honest? And is this new? Or is this interesting? Is this interesting? And for for me, a lot of those jokes now, when I listen back to them, they are still funny. 
to me. And, and, and they are real in the sense of that, that was what I was, that's the life that I had when I wrote them. But for me now, like to say that joke, it's just so weird because I'd, I'd have to really refigure it out for me now because, um, I don't know, I wouldn't stay now. <laughs> that's, I guess the, the bottom line is I wouldn't stay. We'll wrap up my interview with Joel Kim Booster after a short break. He'll talk with me about the feedback, both good and bad, that he gets from other Asian Americans and how he deals with it. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey there, I'm Ellen Weatherford. And I'm Christian Weatherford. And we've got big feelings about animals that we just got to share. On Just the Zoo of Us, your new favorite animal review podcast, we're here to critically evaluate how each animal excels and how it doesn't, rating them out of 10 on their effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Guest experts give you their takes informed by actual, real-life experiences studying and working with very cool animals like sharks, cheetahs, and sea turtles. It's a field trip to the zoo for your ears. So if you or your kids have ever wondered if a pigeon can count, why sloths move so slow, or how a spider sees the world, find out with us every Wednesday on Just the Zoo of Us in its natural habitat on MaximumFun.org. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Joel Kim Booster comic, writer, and star of the new Apple TV show, Loot. Let's get back into our conversation. Do you feel like you have to deal with the expectations of Asian American fans because you, you know, you share many experiences Mm -hmm. with other Asian Americans and Korean Americans. Certainly, you know what it feels like to walk into a room full of white dudes mm-hmm. and be the only Asian guy yeah. or whatever, for example. That is sort of the, our, yeah, everybody knows what that's like um, <laughs> in our community. But like, I, I don't know, uh, you know, you never have the experience of bringing something to school for lunch that other people thought smelled no. weird or these yeah. other things. That- um, my parents are white and I had that and, uh, you know, they are, have, their families have been here for however long and, you know, we had, uh, our traditions were very midwestern and and everything like that so there is a lot that i i feel a little boxed out of um experience wise and i think is uh uh sort of frustrating to to some people that see my success and are maybe frustrated that i don't represent that side of the asian american experience the sort of you know second third generation experience and i guess for me like i don't know i'm really fascinated by what is the the Asian American experience, like what is the culture that we have created for ourselves here that is sort of um, as a byproduct of be- of just exist- existing together as this race of people, not sort of as a, a culture from what we're bringing. I don't know. It's, it's difficult. It's, it's hard. And it's something that I'm sort of trying to figure out like as I go on and I, I hear it. I hear, uh, I hear from a lot of Asian people who are, who don't like me or my material. And I especially hear, I think I especially hear from Asian men who are very frustrated with like, Oh, they put another, you know, a feminine Asian guy on TV. Of course they did. This is a, the media conspiracy, uh, uh, uh conspiring against Asian men to de- emasculate all of us. And that's always a little hard to absorb that I am the face of a media conspiracy, <laughs> uh, to emasculate Asian men because I, I don't know that I necessarily feel that way about myself. But um, uh, 
you do talk in your album about how big your junk is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. To your credit. <laughs> working against the conspiracy. I, I don't know. I'm just like, and it's so weird. It is so weird to represent two minorities uh, in and especially as like the the audience gets bigger and the the platforms get bigger that the opportunities that are that I'm you know offered are are getting bigger and bigger it is a very stressful sort of thought process I have to go through of like am I being you know the right representation for a gay man and and Asian men and Asian people and adoptees and and this that and the other thing and it's just I, I really wish I could just really think about is this funny and not have to um, worry about that other stuff. And I ultimately do, you know, um, but it's there and it's, you know, I do feel uh, some responsibility to, I don't know, make sure that everybody knows that this is my experience, my personal experience, my very specific experience. And I'm not trying to speak for either of these communities when I talk about, you know, any, uh, any of the, you know, experiences that I talk about on stage, but it'll never change. I, I will always get the blowback no matter what. And I am, I don't know, I'm okay with it. You just sort of have to build that, you know, defense, the the armor and let it wash off you. I'm 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 literally I think I'm having a stroke as I'm saying these words. <laughs> Can you tell that <laughs> like these sentences have no end, there is no punctuation anymore. I am literally about to have a stroke. Um I hope any of this is useful. Joel Kimbooster, I'm so grateful to you for taking all this time yeah. to be on Bullseye. It was really I, great to get to talk me. to you. Again, I hope anything I said made sense and is it makes me seem um, smarter than I actually am. Joel Kimbooster, one of the absolute best. He's great in Fire Island. You can stream that movie now on Hulu. His newest project, a TV show called Loot, just debuted on Apple TV+. And if you haven't heard his stand-up, you ought to. His 2018 debut, Model Minority, is streaming on pretty much every platform. Go listen to it. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Although this week, I am actually recording from my friend's guest bedroom in Woodside, California, where I have gone to the Antiques Roadshow. Thank you so much to The Roadshow for inviting me. I had such a great time visiting with my mom. We met some of our favorite appraisers on that program. I had a great time in the Filoli Sculpture Gardens. Now, I will say that I forgot to bring headphones with me on this trip. And so I have borrowed some from my friend's four-year-old daughter. They are tiger-themed. They're orange, and they have little tiger ears on them. Uh, I am recording this right now on video and we will share that on social media, so make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter if you want to see me making an NPR show in children's tiger headphones. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Tabitha Myers. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme music is by the Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation. Our thanks to the Go Team and thanks to their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find us there, give us a follow, and we'll share with you all of our interviews and the aforementioned picture of me wearing little orange children's tiger headphones. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. 
Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.